Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join us Inside the Morgue. Welcome back, everybody, to Inside the Morgue. Happy that you could join us for another week. This week, we will be dissecting Harrow, Season 2, Episode 8, Sub Silencio. This is an Australian show that's available on Hulu, and I had actually never heard of this show until I was trying to find different crime dramas for us to watch, and I came across this. So Harrow is about a forensic pathologist who assists on solving specific cases with the help of the police. Just like last week, we're coming into the middle of some crazy drama from a previous episode. We just love our drama. Harrow is digging up a grave at the cemetery, and just as he gets to the coffin and he's about to open it up, a mysterious figure comes up behind him and injects him with a sedative. He stumbles into the grave that he had just dug up, and that's basically our opening scene. And we just want to say, most pathologists that we know aren't usually digging up graves. (laughs) That I know of, honestly. Maybe in their free time they are, but (laughs) no, I'm kidding. (laughs) We don't know what they do outside of the morgue, maybe. We don't know what they do in their free time. (laughs) They never tell us about it, though. But we cut to a warehouse scene, and we see an Egyptian sarcophagus being scanned by Australian Customs, and there are two museum curators present. As it's being put through the scanner, the body inside the sarcophagus is discovered to have a titanium hip replacement. We get a glimpse of the coffin open up and see the body, which is wrapped to resemble a mummy, but the body actually looks semi-fresh and not at all decomposed or mummified. This body is someone of an important status and no one actually knew he was dead. One of the investigators makes a joke to lighten the mood. He goes, no one knows he's dead, we're going to keep it under wraps. Pun intended. And I thought this was kind of funny, but this also sheds some light onto how people in this industry cope with the horrific things that they see. I'm guilty of making comments and jokes sometimes, too. And I don't mean anything by these jokes, it's just a coping mechanism that we use to deal with the reality that we live in. Yeah, for sure. Definitely relatable. Anyway. He goes on to say that the coffin and the body that was originally in it was part of a collection by the dead man's grandfather. The man was trying to send the coffin back to Egypt, and someone decided that he should go with it instead. Now, the question is, where is the original mummy that was supposed to be in the coffin? Everyone's also wondering where Harrow is, uh, because he's one of the main pathologists in the office. This mummy-slash-not-mummy case made us think of a real-life case of archaeological forgery and a possible murder. This is the case known as the Persian Princess. We got this information from Mummapedia. Also, who knew that was a thing? I love when people take the Pedia part and just, like, make it to whatever specific interest it is. So, like, Mummypedia or Star Wars, it's Wikipedia. <laughs> it's just one of my favorite things. And this information's also at the Archaeological Archive website for the Archaeological Institute of America, 
which will all be linked in our show notes. The sarcophagus was discovered in November of 2000 during a different murder investigation. The mummy was that of a female encased in a wooden coffin with an inscription that translated to, I am the daughter of great King Xerxes and Rodigun. She was also adorned in gold artifacts. This mummy was questioned for how authentic it was because it was being sold on the black market for about $11 million. On the black market, I feel like that's nothing oh, to that's them. Oh, that's true, probably. I'm not usually on the black market. <laughs> I'm never on the black market. I shouldn't say usually, like sometimes I'm there. I'm never on But the- because of the circumstances that this body was found in, it was brought in for investigation. During a CT scan, it was discovered that the decedent had suffered a fatal blow to the neck. It was also discovered that the woman was about 21 to 25 years old and that she had died much more recently than over 2,000 years ago. After the Iran Cultural Heritage Organization examined the quote-unquote mummy, it was officially declared an archaeological forgery. The body had been mummified to attempt to mimic Egyptian burial rituals, with her remains lying on top of a mat that had been coated in honey covered by stone and inscriptions. Her organs had been completely removed, and her body cavity was filled with a white powder. As far as we could find, the remains of this woman are still a mystery. They have no idea who she was or who struck that fatal blow to her neck. How crazy is that? That is absolutely insane. And watching this episode, I totally believed that, oh, a fake mummy, come on. That's totally something made up for TV, but wow. In the next scene of Harrow, we see Harrow waking up from his sedation, and he is inside a coffin himself. He has a phone on him, and a text comes through. The man who sedated Harrow and threw him in this coffin is now taunting him. Harrow is unable to unlock the phone, so he cannot make a call for help. Someone has buried him alive. And this gets a green flag, because although it's scary to think about, it has been known to happen in real life. And there are actually some real-life horrifying stories of individuals who have been buried alive. We'll mention a couple of them, but if you want to read more about these horrifying stories, we found a article on Ranker by Jacob Shelton. So the first story we're going to talk about took place in 1987. Stephen Small, a publishing and media heir, was kidnapped and buried alive in Illinois in a makeshift wooden box near Kankakee. A man named Danny Edwards and his girlfriend, Nancy Rich, came up with his plan to abduct Small, put him underground, and demand $1 million in ransom from his wealthy family. Edwards and Rich provided very minimal air, water, and light while he was inside the coffin via different tubes. However, his breathing tube failed and he was left there to suffocate. I looked up a little bit more about this case on Wikipedia to see what happened after and found out that after their arrest, Danny Edwards eventually led law enforcement to the site that Small was buried. And upon autopsy, the Emmy ruled that he had, in fact, died of asphyxiation. The Emmy also believed that the tube that Rich and Edwards had given him for air was too long for its diameter to serve as an adequate air exchange system. So the Emmy also thought that he wouldn't have lasted for more than three to four hours underground. The second story that we're going to talk about occurred in 1993 and has a little bit of a happier ending. A 24-year-old South African man named Sifo and his fiance got into a car accident. The fiance survived, but Sifo was very badly injured and declared dead at the scene. He was placed in a metal box for burial in a mortuary. He was in the box for two days and two nights. Oh my god. That's a long time. 
I'm starting to realize that being buried alive is probably my worst fear after doing this episode because <laughs> this is all just making me so anxious. Uh, he was there for two days and two nights before waking up and starting to scream for help. Thankfully, there were morgue workers present when Sifo awoke and they were able to get him out of the box alive, which how crazy and absolutely traumatizing is that? But that sounds a lot like how this episode is. Definitely had inspiration behind the plot here. Definitely. We learn Harrow hadn't been seen because he got suspended at work for forging a signature on official work documents. Cutting to the next scene, two doctors are seen scrubbing in before their examinations. They're greeted by HR and are told that a new registered nurse is joining the team as a forensic assistant. Another green flag for this, because although Alice and I are not nurses ourselves, it isn't uncommon for RNs to get into the field of forensics, and I think that their role in this show as a forensic assistant is very similar to our role as an autopsy tech. We cut back to Harrow in the coffin, and he's trying his best to figure out a way to get out, and he gets a call on the phone. The call is from a serial killer who everyone thought was dead until Harrow discovered some evidence to prove that he wasn't. So, therefore, this killer buried Harrow as a form of revenge. I want to know how the serial killer was able to call the phone, but Harrow didn't have service underground. Or was the was he yeah. just blocked from making calls? How whenever Harrow tried to do anything, it was locked from his end, but he could receive incoming calls. And I don't, I'm not a tech person, so Got I don't know it. how that works. Okay. Got it. Maybe it was, yeah, it has to be some setting. I just assumed it was because he didn't have service six feet under the ground. Gotcha. What's with us and jumping in the middle of shows in the middle of a serial killer investigation? All the good ones just jump right into that. It's actually really entertaining jumping in the middle of it when I have no context. Coming in with fresh eyes and I'm like, what is happening? So back at the morgue, the docs are about to start the autopsy on the not-mummy. The dead man was a very wealthy person, and it seems pretty fitting that he was wrapped like a mumming, because embalming used to be considered only for the wealthy back in ancient Egypt. Back then, the embalming process took 70 days to complete. Now it takes about a few hours. I was going to say, I'm not a mortician, but I don't think it takes 70 days. They would first remove all the organs, and after that, they needed to remove all of the moisture from the body. So, throwback to last week's episode when Jess taught us about mummification and desiccation. In order to do this, they would cover the body in natron, a type of salt with drying properties, and they would even pack the body with this salt. They are just about to remove the bandages, but ask if the man was found with his face uncovered. The one doctor pulls up scene photos, which I will give another green flag because oftentimes at autopsy, we refer back to scene photos to confirm or deny whether what we're seeing during examination, if that's how the decedent was found or if it was something changed during transport. Only his mouth was left uncovered. So why would this person go through all this trouble of fully wrapping the entire body, but not wrap the mouth? The question is then asked if the man was still alive when he was put into the Egyptian coffin. They photograph a wound around the eye, and it appears that there is hemorrhaging present, meaning that he did possibly suffocate in the coffin, which we will give yet another green flag. 
Because as we stated in last episode, dead men don't bleed. No, they do not. They do not. They shouldn't. We we also learned that in the first episode. Dead men shouldn't be bleeding. Every episode is the same. <laughs> I know. We have serial killers and we have people who are buried alive or dead when they shouldn't be or think that they're dead when they're not. We have some kind of theme here besides forensics. That's our main theme. So if there's hemorrhaging present in the wound because dead men don't bleed, that would mean he was alive when he went into this coffin. If he had suffocated to death, and they determined the cause of death to be asphyxiation, the manner of death would be ruled a homicide. In the locked coffin, they estimated that if the man was unconscious and breathing very shallowly, he could have lasted several hours. However, if he was panicking and hyperventilating in a locked coffin, as I think anybody would... I definitely would be. I don't want to think about it. (laughs) He would have lasted less than three minutes. So this intrigued us, and we wanted to look more into this. So we found an article on Popside.com by Christina Kala that goes into detail about the mathematics behind how someone could live while buried alive. It all comes down to the coffin and the amount of air available inside the coffin. The smaller you are, the longer you'll live because you take up less space, which means there's more room for oxygen. So the average casket measures about 84 by 28 by 23 inches, so a total volume of 54,096 cubic inches, or 886 liters. The average volume of the human body is 66 liters, and that leaves 820 liters of air and one-fifth, or 164 liters of oxygen. If trapped, a person consumes about half a liter of oxygen per minute, So it would take five and a half hours before all the oxygen in the coffin was consumed. Even if you do get out of the coffin, you're still buried six feet under, and the dirt would be extremely dense and heavy, meaning that your chest would not be able to expand. So dirt would also fill your mouth and nose, clogging your airways. All right, I'm going to go freak out now because thinking about this is so scary. It's a little too real. It's a little too real. And I also just panic whenever I have to talk about math. I'm talking about math and I'm talking about being buried alive. These are two of my least favorite things. So one last thing to note is that carbon dioxide levels would build up, which would essentially make you fall asleep and you'd be in a comatose state before your heart would stop. So you would be unconscious in the last few minutes, which maybe would be a relief. Maybe that's a, a better way to think about it, but I still don't want to think about it. Yeah. I was just going to say, I hope I never have to find out. Still at autopsy, they unwrap the body and start their external examination. The skin damage of the white male is consistent with the age of the decedent. The skin is really thin, and they theorize that because of this, he probably had a lot of bandages at hand at his home. There are also no contusions around the neck to suggest strangulation. So this is a green flag because contusions or bruising around the neck is something that would be noted and photographed during autopsy, especially if there's a suspected hanging or strangulation. However, the tongue looks exceedingly dry and dehydrated with an almost damaged appearance. The ME tells the forensic assistant to get all the fluids that they can and that they're going to do a full tox for the case. A full tox really just means that they're going to send in everything that they can get at autopsy and test for as much as they can so that they can start ruling things out once those results get back. They go to roll him onto his side to examine his posterior, and when they flip over the body, they discover a really weird, strange pattern of abrasions and what almost looks like stab wounds all over the back, and it's in a very specific pattern, too. So I'm going to give this a green flag, but also at the same time a red flag, all rolled into one. And we're going to call that a wash and just cancel that out, but it's a green flag first because this is something that we do in our morgue during external examinations. 
An external exam is how every autopsy starts. The ME will look the decedent over to make note of anything specific seen on the outside of the body before we open them up. We, as the autopsy techs, take overall pictures of the front of the body first and then flip them on their side and take pictures of the back in order to see if there's any notable wounds, scars, or, or even tattoos that should be photographed. And I think in this scene, one of the pathologists warns the nurse that's acting as the forensic assistant and says, oh, sometimes when we move them, they flatulate or something. Or they give out a last gasp of air that's left in their lungs. That does happen occasionally. <laughs> but the scene is also a red flag at the same time because they don't use a ruler or scale in any of their photos when they examine the wounds on the back. And in our everyday routine of doing autopsies, we use a scale with every single photo. This scale has a case number on it, so if for any reason we have to go back and look at the photo, we know that this photo belongs to this specific case. Using a scale also helps approximate how large or small a wound, scar, or tattoo was. The team goes to the decedent's house where the rest of the Egyptian collection's being held in order to find any clues or evidence that would explain how the decedent got those marks on his back. They examine the table where the sarcophagus sat, and they had previously found fibers on the floor that belonged to the old mummy, and they confirm that this is where that mummy was removed. However, security cameras were turned off on the night of the removal and murder. They make their way up to the bedroom, and on the bed, they pull away a blanket and find a strange device with blood on it, and this device matches the markings perfectly on the decedent's back. And we learn that this is an 18th century wheat threshing sled. I had to look this up because I had no idea what this was. It's a wooden device that was used to separate cereals from their straw. Yeah, I never heard of that. (laughs) Don't ask what any of that means, because I have no idea, or why he would even have this. But they also find a slew of bandages and Coban in a closet, so that explains their theory there of him having a bunch of Band-Aids at hand. On the table, they also find a weird white powder substance, and they believe it to be sildenafil. Back at the morgue, we see the docs and the tech mid-autopsy with the body open up on the table. They have a whiteboard with a body diagram, and this is actually very accurate along with the organ weights. So this is another green flag because we also use whiteboards in our morgue for autopsy notes, and we also write down all the organ weights during the exam on the whiteboards too. So they have the blood results back already and the blood revealed levels of HS troponin. Troponin is a protein found in the muscles of the heart and can be released into the blood when an individual has a heart attack or has some sort of damage to cardiac muscle. They now theorize that the killer may have wrapped him up because they thought he was already dead, not knowing that he was only unconscious or incapacitated after experiencing his heart attack. The tox results also came back with extremely high levels of sildenafil, four times more than the recommended prescription dose. For those of you that don't know, sildenafil is the brand name for Viagra, and when taken in excessive amounts, it could stop the heart from functioning. The investigators are interviewing the second wife of the decedent, and she explains that she and her husband slept in separate rooms and they had not been intimate for some time. In her husband's will, the second wife only gets half of his estate, while the first wife gets the other half. So, as they are interviewing the first wife, this woman blames the second wife for the murder of the ex-husband. 
The investigators request a DNA swab from both women to see if they're able to match any traces found on the bandages. Now we're going back to Harrow in his coffin. He seems like he's trying to take slow, shallow breaths, and he's using a watch that he's wearing to try and scratch the top of the coffin. And as I keep stating, these scenes of him just laying in the coffin stressed me out. Me too. It's so stressful to watch someone sitting in a coffin. Working in a morgue, Jess and I often get asked, oh, what do you think the worst way to die is? And I don't know why I usually don't think of this. I'll usually say, oh, probably being burned alive, which also is probably terrible. But watching this episode made me think, you know what? I think being buried alive would probably be the worst. My worst fear is definitely drowning. But I think the thought of having a lack of air really scares me. And that's what this episode is. Yeah, this whole episode, because we were watching Harrow be buried alive, but then we were back to the autopsy where this man was buried alive. Exactly. Constant stress. So we go back to the morgue, and the pathologist is taking another look at the body. The tech explains that he did die of oxygen starvation. So she pulls up the exam photos for the doc, and she starts talking through her thought process. When he had the heart attack, he looked like he was dead, but he wasn't. He was unconscious long enough to be wrapped and put in the coffin. The man regained consciousness while he was in the coffin, and he worked his mouth free of the wrapping. The pattern on his tongue had a very distinct up-and-down pattern that indicated he was trying to free his mouth. The pathologist goes to do a bioluminescence test in the coffin and inside finds the letters W-I-L. She then swabs the inside of his mouth, and on the cotton swab, there appears to be lipstick remnants. The pathologist believes the lipstick belongs to one of the museum curators who had convinced the decedent to change his will. She made him change his will so that his fortune would go to the Youth for Democracy movement, which is an Egyptian opposition party. The curator drugged the man with sildenafil in an attempt to kill him. The lawyer in charge of the will found him shortly after his heart attack event. He then wrapped him in bandages and placed him in the coffin. He was unaware that the man was still alive when he put him in the coffin. I don't know if that would be my first instinct if I found somebody close to me and I'm going to be like, oh, I'll just wrap them up and put him in the coffin. As someone who's kind of close to you, I'm relieved to hear that. I'm relieved that if you found me unconscious, you wouldn't wrap me up and put me in a coffin. I would never put you in a coffin. I appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone else listening who is close to you appreciates that. Seriously, why is that his first thought? In the show, too, I think when they're interviewing him, he kind of just says it very matter-of-factly. Yeah, I found him. I put him in the coffin. Not a second thought. No guilt, no thoughts about it. So I just wanted to say, too, I was not expecting the museum curator and the lawyer to be the killer in this show. And usually when I watch these type of shows, I'm always trying to guess who the killer is going to be before it's over. And no brag, but a little bit of a brag. I get it right a lot. But this was one time where they were not even on my radar. I thought they were just two actors in the cold open when they first found the body. I did not expect them to be big players in this episode. They were in maybe two scenes up until the end of the episode here. Yeah. And I had not, they weren't even a thought in my they head that not. they could be the killer. I was shocked. Harrow surprised me. That was a big twist. That was a good plot twist. The dead man's grandson shows up at the morgue and he is viewing the body of his grandfather. And I'm going to give this a red flag, but maybe this is just based on our own experience. But in our morgue, families would not be allowed to come to our facility to view the body. This is normally done at a funeral home, so the funeral home attendants and embalmers can properly prepare the body for viewing, making them presentable to the family. Because nobody wants to remember their loved one in a disheveled state after an autopsy. They want to be presentable, and they want to have a good memory right. of them. Yeah, exactly. 
And the body's also just in a normal office-looking room on a table. This is probably one of the most inaccurate things that I've seen this entire episode, minus them just not using a scale to take pictures. But the pathologist does a really good job at explaining how the grandfather died to the young boy, who this boy looks about 14. She explains that as one age, the heart tends to enlarge, the artery walls and arterioles become thicker, the elastic tissue within those walls and arterioles becomes lost and degraded, and this condition is called isolated systolic hypertension. Although this isn't the exact way he died and she didn't go into details, sometimes it's just easier to give family closure than to tell the entire truth, especially to young individuals. And there was no guardian present with him. It was just the grandson. I didn't even think of that. Where were his parents or any kind of guardian? Nowhere. He was just in there with a bunch of strangers and his deceased grandfather. That didn't even click for me how odd that was. But another plot twist, we learn that the young grandson's name is Will. That could potentially be why the letters W-I-L were found inside the sarcophagus, because I think the grandfather was trying to give Will more of his will than the two wives, but who's to say? We then learn that Harrow forged the signature on those official work documents because he was trying to dig up the remains of the dead man to prove that he wasn't actually dead. While Harrow was in the coffin, we see he's feeling lightheaded and disoriented, and he probably has a headache and feelings of confusion and restlessness. All of this would be true since he's suffering from hypoxia, which is when there's an absence of oxygen to the tissues in your body in order to sustain bodily functions. Someone does get him out of the coffin, and he wakes up beside the dug-up grave, and that's how this episode ends. What a way to end the episode. Well, at least we know he's... At least he's alive. He can breathe. But yeah, who got him out? Who put him in? I need to know more. I mean, this was a pretty good show, so it makes me want to go watch from season one now. Yeah, see, this podcast is just going to make me watch all of the crime dramas. (laughs) I'm adding so many shows to my list. So that brings us to an end for this episode. So we tallied a total of seven green flags and only one red flag. So from our point of view inside the morgue, Harrow got a lot of things right. So in our professional opinion, this episode does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Remember to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorguePod and email us your show and end episode suggestions for next time at InsideTheMorguePod at gmail.com. And one last thing, don't forget to spread the word about Inside the Morgue by rating and reviewing us when you listen to our podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.